0: Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and today I am sitting down with Brandon Black, a Bitcoin engineer from BitGo a Bitcoin or maybe crypto company. I think you guys might have more than Bitcoin there. We do coins as well. Today, we're going to discuss ordinal theory inscriptions, which ordinals enables, and how this has led to BRC20. And additionally, how this means that Bitcoin is over. Pack it up, kids. Time to go home. Just kidding. So Brandon, can you just jump in and tell us what ordinal theory is and broadly how it works?
1: This guy, Casey Redarmer, created ordinal theory. And it has kind of a rich history uh, in terms of people have talked in the past about things like colored coins or individual sats on the Bitcoin network being identified. But ordinal theory was Casey's kind of discovery of the most simple way to individually track satoshis on the Bitcoin network as they move.
0: Before you go on, can you just describe a color coin briefly? I don't understand them very well. The general idea with a
1: colored coin was that uh, you can make a Bitcoin transaction that would identify a specific UTXO as being tagged, and then people with specific client software could read those tags and transfer them when spending a UTXO that had been previously tagged. So you're kind of applying a color to a UTXO, and then you could transfer that color to a different UTXO when spending the original one. But I don't know the technical details.
0: I think that the analog metaphor, imagine you're at a music festival. And when you go to buy a beer at the stand, instead of accepting cash, when you go into the festival, you trade cash for these coins, these tokens that only work inside the festival. And these tokens are actually just quarters. They're standard US currency but they've put a piece of tape on it and now that quarter means it's a beer. So when you're at the festival, as in running the special client software, this quarter can have some special meaning. But when you leave, you can still put it in a washing machine, I think is is one way to think about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they have some additional value that's separate from the underlying thing. The Bitcoin network doesn't know about the coloring and the US Federal Reserve doesn't know about the tape on the coin. But yeah, in, in practice, in the festival or in the special client software, they have a special meaning.
0: Now, I think when ordinals are described and you talk about how to track and individual UTXOs, sometimes people get nervous and they're saying, wait, are you breaking Bitcoin fungibility again? That's bad, right? You shouldn't track individual UTXOs. But what does that mean in the context of ordinals?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's important to talk about. With ordinals in particular, one thing to note is that ordinals do not do this on the UTXO level. They do it on the individual Satoshi level. So if you have an output containing one Bitcoin, that's 100 million ordinals within that output. Each one has its own individual ordinal identity tracking back to the Coinbase in which it was created. And so you can move those then separately. And that's one of the things that I think made ordinals pick up more than colored coins, because they track every single Satoshi, you actually don't need special client software to retain the value when you transfer them. The only way to destroy an ordinal is to collaborate with a miner and have the miner underpay themselves the block reward. Otherwise, no ordinals are ever destroyed. And that's different than colored coins, where if you put a colored coin just into a plain wallet, it can be accidentally destroyed on transfer. So that's something important about ordinals. And that actually also then talks to the fungibility question. Because these ordinals always move with every transaction, there's nothing said about the ownership of an ordinal when it transferred. It's just that each one does move. And so we're not saying, oh, because these ordinals moved in this way, there's some specific ownership pattern. It's just a fact that under ordinal theory, every ordinal in a UTXO moves to a new location when that UTXO is consumed that new location could be owned by anybody, including potentially a miner. So there's no change to the fungibility properties of Bitcoin with this.
0: And I guess what I was getting at is ordinal theory is just a lens to look at Bitcoin UTXOs and Satoshis. It's not like a way to do more surveillance on the chain. It's just a algorithm to look at the UTXO set and count backwards all of the Satoshis in it so that you create kind of an index that you can use to reference. Is that right?
1: Exactly. It's just a way to look back at where Satoshis came from, essentially.
0: And on the subject of UTXOs and how ordinals are every Satoshi in a UTXO, is that practical? Because Bitcoin transactions have a dust limit. There's a limit to how small you can make a Bitcoin transaction. So that doesn't really mean that if I have a UTXO with a thousand Satoshis in it, I can create a thousand ordinals from that, right? Aren't I constrained by the dust limit on the network? I mean, I like to be precise.
1: So you have a thousand ordinals there. What you can't do is transfer each of those thousand ordinals easily to separate individual holders. In order to do that, you'd have to do some really crazy slicing stuff where you, you add funds to the UTXO to make it bigger, and then you carefully transfer out certain segments of it. So yeah, it's difficult to transfer just a single Satoshi. And as a result, clients working with ordinals keep their outputs more in the 10,000 Satoshis per output, of which typically only one of those Satoshis is an important ordinal that might be inscribed or associated with a BRC20 transfer or something like that.
0: Great. Now, you've said inscribed. So ordinals are a way of indexing Satoshis so that we can do something with it. I think that the first main use case of this ordinal theory is inscriptions. Can you describe an inscription, what it is and how it works?
1: Yeah. So exactly as you said, the the first use case that, and the reason Casey designed the ordinal theory idea was he wanted to be able to transfer digital art. And he's a bit of a digital artist and he wanted to be able to transfer digital art, but the existing NFT systems on other chains weren't helpful in what he wanted to do. And so he designed inscriptions on top of ordinals.
0: What exactly was Casey trying to do and why didn't he like the way NFTs were implemented on other chains?
1: My understanding is that he didn't think there was a strong enough assertion of ownership on other chains because the NFT platform is what holds the actual digital art and the blockchain just holds a a reference to it from there. So the NFT platform goes down like the common ones like OpenSea, if the OpenSea goes down, then the NFT that you supposedly owned can disappear spontaneously. Or OpenSea can change the contents potentially of what displays when you access an NFT. And so Casey wanted to have a, a stronger assertion of exactly what it is you own. And so he wanted a, a better system in that way.
0: So he wanted to put the NFT on chain to have it actually embedded in the blockchain data. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so the way inscriptions work, much like ordinals, at least the transfer portion of inscriptions is based on the ordinal convention. What you add with inscriptions is if there is a specific type of script associated with a Bitcoin transaction, an input being spent in particular the first satoshi the first ordinal in the input being spent with this special kind of script is considered to be inscribed with the contents of that script In practice, what this means is that you create a special commitment transaction that commits to a script containing your inscription data, which might be an image or might be text or might be a PDF or even an HTML website. And when you spend that commitment, like spending P2SH on a regular Bitcoin transaction, you have to reveal the script associated. And when you reveal that associated script of this special form, the ordinal convention says the first Satoshi in the input revealing that script is now associated with that data.
0: I see. So the ordinal is associated with a script that creates a commitment. Now, how does that turn into a JPEG of a frog smoking a blunt on the blockchain?
1: Yeah. So the way we transform this into a (laughs) dickbot is that the ordinal supporting indexers or software read that script, which contains several segments of binary encoded data, and they concatenate that binary encoded data. They pull out the type of data from kind of a special header in the ordinal, Casey calls it an envelope. I think it's a fine name. In the ordinal envelope, there's a header that specifies what type of data it is. So you pull out the binary data and then you interpret it according to the type specified in the header. And now you have your dick butt or your Pepe Frog smoking a blunt.
0: Now, NFTs on Bitcoin are not a new idea. Counterparty was another scheme built on Bitcoin that did something similar. My understanding is that, at first, counterparty encoded data into the Bitcoin blockchain using malformed multi-sig transactions. So for Bitcoin nodes, they saw a multi-sig transaction and they broadcast it. They, you know, eventually it made it into blocks. But these were not actually multi-sigs. They were actually data disguised as a multi-sig. And this was perceived as a very expensive way to add data to the blockchain because this these multi-sigs needed to be stored on everybody's node, etc. And then this sort of, I believe this conversation led to the creation Thank you of a way to send a message on Bitcoin that wouldn't have to be stored by nodes, the op return functionality. How is ordinal theory and inscriptions different than counterparty malformed multisigs and the op return function?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So counterparty, if I understand it correctly, has a couple of different modes. One of the modes in counterparty is these malformed multisigs that actually can't be spent. And another mode is multisigs that technically can be spent, where it's a one of ten multisig, for example, and nine of those keys are just data. But one of the keys is a real key that can spend it. And that allows for transferring kind of ownership of the reference to that data, if you will. And so the kind where it's totally unspendable is, of course, somewhat problematic because it creates these unspendable data that's stuck in the UTXO set that nodes have to treat as potentially spendable because they can't prove it's unspendable versus the other kind where it actually is spendable. There's less of a problem with that. Then return is provably unspendable. And so it's also then less problematic being provably unspendable, the nodes don't have to think about whether or not it's ever going to be spent. And that's why Opperturn was created exactly as you said. And then ordinal theory is more akin to the counterparty data pushes that can be spent in that it creates a valid UTXO that is spendable and that often will be spent because that's how you transfer these inscriptions, which is one of the important properties of inscriptions, is that you can spend the resulting inscribed output, which has the single inscribed ordinal at the beginning. Usually you can spend that to someone else, a regular Bitcoin address to transfer the ownership of that inscribed ordinal. So it's it's a little bit like the counterparty that can be spent, but it's actually nicer than that in terms of how it's treated by the blockchain, because the script evaluation, has no additional cost on an ordinal inscription, once you reveal the inscription, it's held at a standard Bitcoin address, which could be a single SIG or a multi SIG, but it has no extra kind of one of 10 multi SIG associated with it. It's just a plain address. And that's one of the things that I think makes inscriptions preferable as a way to add data to the Bitcoin blockchain relative to counterparty.
0: And another aspect of the way that inscriptions add data to the blockchain is the fact that this takes advantage of taproot and tap script. Why did Taproot enable this use case of adding arbitrary data? And was that expected? Was this how we thought Taproot would be used?
1: Yeah, another good question. So there are two things that enable inscriptions. One came from Segwit and the other from Taproot. So kind of the last two soft forks to Bitcoin did combine to enable this this use of Bitcoin. So Segwit added a discount on witness data, which conceptually witness data is just the data that proves you have permission to spend some Bitcoin. And that's different from transaction data, which describes the way you are moving that Bitcoin. So witness data was given a discount for a few reasons, but one of which is that already in Bitcoin, we don't validate by default the proofs of permission to spend for data that is sufficiently deeply buried under proof of work, and therefore witness data becomes less expensive to validate over time. So that's why we gave it a discount in SegWit. It also has a more esoteric property of encouraging the consumption of inputs as opposed to the creation of outputs, which is better overall for the health of the Bitcoin node runners. When
0: you say that witness data gets less expensive to verify over time. I think that for many people coming into Bitcoin, when they think about cost associated with Bitcoin, it has to do with proof of work and spending Bitcoin to make transactions, to buying space in a block to make a transaction. What is this expense of validating signatures that you're talking about here?
1: There's one important cost that people think about on a day-to-day basis. Um, But one of the things that Bitcoin developers think a lot about is the cost to start a new node from scratch. And that's where this witness data gets less expensive over time. When you want to start a new node, the standard way to do that is to download the entire history of Bitcoin and validate all the movements of funds. In order to speed that up, we have this concept of assume valid, which says as long as the the transaction movements are valid, we're not going to worry about whether someone made a mistake in validating the proof of ownership in that process below some significant amount of work. And so the witnesses below that amount are not looked at or not validated on the on the way. And those signature validations, these elliptic curve operations, ETDSA on the SECP 256K1 curve, can be quite expensive. We're talking milliseconds even on a fast desktop computer. And milliseconds may not seem like much, but of course there are millions of Bitcoin transactions every year. And so it does start to add up to a lot of compute time to validate the blockchain. And that's what I mean when when I say the witness data gets less expensive because below the assumed valid height, we don't perform these elliptic curve operations to validate the signatures or the proofs of ownership for coins as they move.
0: So Bitcoin developers are actually thinking about the compute resources necessary to bootstrap new Bitcoin nodes on the network. And because witness data is expensive to validate in terms of computer resources, This means that as you download a blockchain, if you're dealing with really old blocks, you don't actually need to validate all of these signatures because so many blocks have been built on top of that. So much proof of work has been built on top of that, that if there was a bad signature in here, everything on top of it would be invalid. The whole system would be broken. And so because you sort of know it's not, it's okay to kind of Trust these old signatures. Do I have that right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Because Bitcoin fundamentally is about that proof of work. As you kind of said, what we really care about is what the greatest work chain is and that there's no inflation of the supply or lying about the supply or the movements of funds. It's actually less important that we know that the exact owner of the funds was indeed the person who initiated some movement of funds five years ago. What we need to know for sure is that the proof of work is valid and that the movements did not create any inflation or double spending in the supply.
0: And do you know what the standard is for assume valid? How many blocks ago is it, or how many years?
1: I think it's about one year they try to keep the assume valid height out, about one year ago.
0: Now, you also said that SegWit incentivizes the destruction of UTXOs. Can you talk about what that means and why that might be important in a similar context to keeping the compute resources of running a Bitcoin node low?
1: Absolutely. So before SegWit, there were two major ways to, to lock and spend Bitcoin, and those were pay to pubkey hash and pay to script hash. With pay to pub key hash, there was a reasonable balance that the size of an output creating a new coin in the Bitcoin network was about 40 bytes. And the size of an input was about, I think it was 90 bytes, I think. So the inputs were more expensive, but only about double relative to the outputs with pay to pub key hash. But if you were to do multi-sig using pay to script hash, that difference became very large and you would have say 40 bytes for an output, but you would have 300 bytes for an input. And this means that in many cases, it is much cheaper to accumulate many small UTXOs, small coins, rather than spending your coins and consult Validating down to fewer UTXOs because of that cost of spending those inputs at 300 bytes per input. With SegWit, the, we apply the discount to that input portion, specifically the signatures and other data needed to validate your ownership, which means that spending a, let's say, two of three multi-sig with SegWit, pay-to-witness script hash, is 107.5 virtual bytes of this discount we have now virtual bytes instead of whole bytes and so the outputs are now 40 bytes and the inputs are 107.5 bytes and that puts a better balance on the spending versus creating of these inputs
0: so if i can summarize that it sounds like the address scheme The way that it is accounted for, validated in Bitcoin software incentivizes certain behavior. Like it has to incentivize a certain type of behavior. And previous to SegWit, you had this issue where if you're just a rational economic actor, you're just doing what is in your best economic interest, you'd end up with a lot of small UTXOs, a lot of kind of small value chunks of Bitcoin. But after SegWit, if you were a rational actor, you might be more inclined to consolidate these small UTXOs into larger UTXOs. And there would be sort of a economic benefit to doing that. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And what's the problem with UTXOs? Why can't I just have a million UTXOs each of a thousand Satoshis? What's the cost there?
1: So the way Bitcoin is validated, the most important thing that nodes do, really is to validate that we're not double spending Bitcoin. And the way that Bitcoin is implemented, they have to check against all available spendable Bitcoin to see if some spend is valid, which means there's a database of all UTXOs. And every time a node wants to validate a transaction, it has to check that each input to that transaction exists in that node's unspent database. And so if that unspent database grows larger, that increases the both IO and memory requirements for a Bitcoin node to validate incoming transactions. So especially on kind of resource-constrained nodes, like your Raspberry Pis or your phone-based nodes, things like that, the UTXO set growing can become very costly. Right now, for example, it's about five gigabytes. So on your typical, let's say, previous generation home computer, it exceeds the size of the memory of the computer, uh, which means that when nodes are validating transactions, they often have to go to the hard disk to validate those transactions as opposed to being able to do it out of memory.
0: And that's orders of magnitude slower even with an ssd yeah
1: with an ssd it's about one order of magnitude slower with a hard disk it's about uh three i think
0: so thank you for that background because i think we've established that when we're thinking about the bitcoin network it's important to keep in mind the resource utilization that activity on the bitcoin network creates now back to ordinal inscriptions
1: so that was the segwit portion. And then what does taproot do to enable ordinal inscriptions? So taproot also enables ordinal inscriptions in one specific way, which is that within tap scripts, there is no longer a script size limit apply. And that's different than segwit or previous scripts where there were several limits of, of which one was a script size limit. And there are many reasons why that limit was lifted, but the most important one is that the Bitcoin developers working on the Taproot soft fork wanted to make computational analysis of Bitcoin scripts tractable. They were finding it and they were trying to develop formal analysis tools to analyze the execution paths for different kinds of Bitcoin scripts you could write. And they were finding that the the limits of size and number of signatures, those elliptic curve operations that are expensive, those many constraints made writing those analysis tools prohibitively difficult. One way to, to make those tools easier to build is to remove some of the constraints. And so there was discussion about the trade offs of removing the script size constraint. And again, considering the resources needed to validate Bitcoin, it was accepted that large scripts don't have undue validation cost many signatures do. And so we kind of had this double limit, a limit on size and number of signatures that was really only serving one purpose, which was to limit the compute cost of validating all the signatures. And so they removed one of those limits, but retained the number of signatures limit. That removing of the script size limit allowed us to now put in these several hundred kilobyte JPEGs into Bitcoin with inscriptions.
0: So you're saying that one feature of the Taproot soft fork upgrade that I've, by the way, never heard of before was to Limit the size of tap scripts mainly so that Bitcoin wonks could do more analysis of Bitcoin scripts?
1: Yeah, to unlimit the, the size of the scripts to enable formal analysis of script execution paths.
0: Why is this formal analysis important or or do you think it isn't?
1: I do think it's important. So Bitcoin script is used to lock coins. That's the fundamental job, to lock and unlock coins. And people try to build, for good reasons, more advanced locking and unlocking constructs. For example, the Lightning Network uses a locking construct of these hashed time lock contracts. We have a discrete log contract that people use to create uh, marketplaces on top of Bitcoin. There are a lot of more advanced contracts And it's kind of to contrast some things here with a smart contracting language like Ethereum, we can't formally analyze the smart contract on Ethereum because of the complexity of the language. With Bitcoin, the, the language is deliberately simple and enables formal analysis, which means that when someone designs a new contract, you can actually ask the question, is this contract safe in these specific ways that matter to me? And you can write a software to analyze whether this script is safe in the ways that matter to you. But writing that tool to answer that question was too difficult with the unlimited or with the limited script size. And so we went in this direction of removing that limit so that when we build these more advanced script types on Bitcoin, we can analyze them and answer with a with a program which types of safety this contract guarantees. This avoids having to pay expensive cryptographers every time you make a new contract. Instead, you can run some software and say, is this script safe in the ways that matter to me? And it can say yes or no.
0: That's fascinating. So it sounds like this removal of the script limit and taproot is part of a... Long term plan to add functionality that I think is often called smart contracting that exists on other chains, but to do it in a way that allows formal analysis. So that, you know, to contrast with Ethereum, you don't have $300 million of funds stolen every year through smart contract exploits. Is that sort of correct?
1: Exactly right. So in my employer, BitGo, we have an Ethereum multi-sig smart contract. In order to ensure that was safe, we had to hire cryptographers to formally analyze it by hand because a computer couldn't analyze it. If we were to want to do the equivalent on Bitcoin, obviously Bitcoin has built in multi-sig, so we don't have to, but the equivalent on Bitcoin... Is much more tractable, especially with TapScript removing that script size limit. We can use software to analyze the safety instead.
0: Okay, that was an amazing digression. But now we've gone through SegWit, we've gone through Taproot. We now understand that there are a couple things at work here. First is that SegWit makes signature data less expensive, and Taproot removes the script limit. So now you can create big chunks of signature data. Am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah,
1: big chunks of witness data of which the common type is signatures, but it can be any script
0: data. So now we have these building blocks, the ability to put big scripts into a cheap part of a Bitcoin block. Now what happens? Now we get to
1: put dick butts and pepes on Bitcoin and it's very silly.
0: Okay. And I noticed that a few months ago, my bandwidth at home started to be, um, you know, sort of started to be constrained. This actually inspired me to start doing traffic shaping on my network, which I'd never had to do before. And I realized that suddenly my Bitcoin nodes were just consuming more bandwidth than I'd previously experienced. And I think that this is this began at the sort of inception of ordinals and it sort of accelerated. And so my perception just as a node user was, gosh, this thing is using bandwidth and blocks are, you know, they, they were bigger for a while. But what you're telling me is that the way that ordinal inscriptions were designed, even though they end up sort of consuming bandwidth as they are, these transactions are shared between nodes and they do end up consuming block space if you don't prune your node and you save the witness data, they're actually, not that computationally difficult to validate. And so we can still run nodes on Raspberry Pis and small computers, but we just need bigger hard drives.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so there's obviously a trade-off there. So the more inscription data that comes in a block, the cheaper computationally that block will be to verify, but the greater storage and bandwidth cost it will have. So it's obviously very hard to compare the costs of these different kinds of resource, but there is definitely a trade-off. It's not that inscriptions just make Bitcoin more expensive. They make Bitcoin more storage and bandwidth expensive and less computationally expensive.
0: I feel like this leads us to BRC20. Because when you when you say that ordinals make Bitcoin blocks less computationally expensive, immediately I think, well, why don't we replace the JPEG of a blunt with something else? Maybe a scaling solution, maybe another token or something. And now we can take advantage of this scheme to do something else. So what is BRC20? And does it do This.
1: I'll try to start without my opinion and say that BRC20 is an attempt to bring an ERC20-like token minting scheme to Bitcoin. So on Ethereum, there's ERC20. It's a standardized way of building a smart contract that allows the holder of the smart contract admin keys to mint tokens and specify the parameters for that minting. And so BRC20 is an attempt to bring a similar concept to Bitcoin. And it does this by creating a specific set of JSON documents that you inscribe using, you know, your standard that we already discussed inscription envelope, you inscribe these JSON documents into Bitcoin and then there's a convention about what these documents mean in terms of how tokens are created, the rules for those tokens, which token transformations are valid related to that token, for example, the supply limit and so you can have then a BRC20 indexer that applies these conventional rules, another lens on top of a lens now, so we have the ordinals lens, the inscriptions lens and now the BRC20 lens as a way to view the movements of tokens within Bitcoin via these BRC20 JSON inscriptions.
0: So ERC20, in my understanding, was the standard that enabled the wave of altcoins in 2017 that kind of was the killer app of Ethereum because it was this very low effort way to create a speculative token and you could build it on top of Ethereum, an existing blockchain platform. So no one had to build new integrations to trade it or to sort of see it using their Ethereum wallets. And now that's on Bitcoin. It really doesn't seem kind of in keeping culturally with what people have done on Bitcoin, because it seems like from the get-go, an obviously sort of speculative, low effort sort of activity. Am I being too judgmental? Or do you think that that's kind of in keeping with the history of Bitcoin and the kind of values that the Bitcoin developers have sort of espoused through their code?
1: No, I think you're you're roughly in the right direction. And I, and I particularly latched onto your, your saying low effort. And that's exactly what BRC20 is. One of the things that is so interesting to me about BRC20 is that it's this JSON standard that's purely convention-based, that as the rules for the transfers are convention, there's no double spend protections for these tokens within Bitcoin. There is double spend prevention only in the lens that's used to view them. Because Bitcoin does enforce double spends of, of UTXOs, the Bitcoin network kind of supports these lenses, but it does not create a hard double spend rule on these tokens, which is I think an important difference between BRC20 and ERC20. With ERC20, the smart contract rules are enforced by Ethereum. But with BRC20, the smart contract rules, or they're not even smart contracts, the dumb contract rules are only enforced by the viewers. So it's a convention based token standard as opposed to a uh, smart contract based token standard. Yeah, it's low effort. And I think the fact that it is low effort is part of what makes it appeal to a certain category of people. And it is definitely somewhat kind of outside of, of the, the maybe intended use of Bitcoin as a timestamping and, and ledger service of, of highest quality to put this data in that doesn't have the 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 real value of that excellent timestamping service.
0: I don't think that there's much more we can say technically really about BRC20 other than this seems really quite bad if you were to sort of take BRC20 tokens seriously. Because if the convention of how to transfer them is enforced through the viewer, through the wallet, or, or however you interact with it, that means if there are two different wallets, there could be a conflict in how we perceive the transfer. That seems very weak. That seems like a situation where you could, you, you plausibly will get a double spend pretty soon.
1: The one thing that I can say in defense of BRC20 here is that Bitcoin, the single thing, if you will, that Bitcoin is best at is is creating a canonical, indisputable ordering of events. And so the one thing with bs 20 here that, that helps them is that while there can be a dispute, they can reference the Bitcoin blockchain and know exactly which order things happen. And then within their community, they can say, based on that ordering, you know, holder A is the one who actually received those coins and the double spend to B must be invalid because within Bitcoin, there is a canonical sequence of those events. And so that's why it's like just barely a strong enough convention because they are using Bitcoin's single best attribute to enable their convention.
0: I see. So let's maybe zoom out and think about the consequences of ordinals, ordinal inscriptions, and BRC20. Because right now, the mempool on mempool.space, somehow I think that my mempool instance or my mempool.space instance was killed by the onslaught of transactions, so I'm using the public one. I'm seeing over 900 megabytes of transactions in the mempool and also a low priority fee rate of 100 84 sats per vbyte which is very high. I mean that means that a standard transaction is going to cost somewhere around $7 to send. And I imagine that if you are managing a lightning node right now and if you didn't set an incredibly high fee rate, you're probably going to have trouble with force closed channels because your fee rate is likely to be under, you know, 100 sats per vbyte. So this seems like this congestion could cause problems for use cases previous to ordinals, lightning channels or or regular Bitcoin transactions by raising the cost. Do you see that as an issue or is this just part of the kind of natural evolution of Bitcoin fee markets and use cases?
1: It's a short-term issue and a long-term benefit. These kinds of high-fee events happen periodically in Bitcoin's history. They are a forcing function that make us improve the tools for whether it be second layers or fee management or to understand what tools might need to be built before the next time. And so right now, Yes, it's painful. There are companies that have had to shut down that were doing lightning things. There are people in developing countries that can't use Bitcoin right now that we're used to using it. And that's certainly kind of a, a right now bad thing, but it's really informing what we need to build for the future as well. Because we know that Bitcoin as this ultimate time stamping service, there's going to be more demand than supply for the space on that amazing time stamping network. And how do we make best use of that limited resource, these kinds of call it congestion or just fees? events help us know what that what that future looks like
0: am i right in saying that the high fee environment of 2017 was a forcing function for lightning network development
1: absolutely it was was a forcing function for lightning network development for batching for wider deployment of segwit yeah all all kinds of things and even the development of kind of off-chain cryptographic protocols like musig2 that blockstream and and crew have worked on all of these things were informed by that fee
0: event yeah so i guess a long-term view is that because the Bitcoin layer one blockchain essentially doesn't scale, it's very easy to sort of hit the limit that causes fees to go parabolic. And every time that happens, we are incentivized to create another scaling technology or another way to avoid getting hurt in a high fee environment like this. So looking forward, do you see the next lightning or the next improvement to lightning? Do you see the next scaling project or projects that... That are going to be raised up by this fee environment.
1: Yeah, I, I see quite a few things happening. So what one thing that I want to jump to that is a little bit on the side, but it is related, is that BRC20 has this property of using many, many Bitcoin transactions in order to do its to do its thing. There are already other ways to do tokens on Bitcoin. Both RGB and Tarot have working code that lets you do tokens on Bitcoin. And those tokens can be transferred over Lightning. And as a result, while you may need to do some on chain transactions with them from time to time, the overall cost to the network of doing Turo or RGB is much lower than BRC20. And so that jumps back to the thing you said about low effort around these these meme coins, these token pumps. It's clear that what mattered the most in BRC20 happening here was the low effort nature and not the ability to do tokens on Bitcoin. Because the ability to do tokens on Bitcoin existed before BRC20, it just wasn't quite low effort enough. So that's one thing, which is that we already have a better way to do tokens that does scale with Bitcoin because they can be moved on lightning. So I expect that... If tokens remain important, which I don't think they will, but if they do, they will probably move off to these second layer scaling solutions over time. To get to the meat of your question, there are lots of new developments that could be pushed forward by this. One is this TBDXXX proposal by Barack, which is a, an alternative to the Lightning Network that has better properties, especially around the ability to go offline and manage your, your second layer funds without a constant connection connection and a constant online signer like lightning. And that could certainly be something that in the future enables more people to operate with Bitcoin on the second layer and avoid these high fee uh, difficulties. Another thing that's been out there, obviously, there was the BIP 119 kind of debacle where Jeremy Rubin wanted to activate it on Bitcoin soon, but people felt like he was pushing it too hard and he got a lot of pushback as a result. But BIP 119 enables a feature called congestion control, where you can commit to the future existence of some outputs without paying the full cost of creating them right now. And if we had CTV when this happened, exchanges could have switched to congestion control withdrawals and significantly reduced their cost right now while fees are so high. So I think there's a renewed interest in CTV congestion control as a way of managing environments like this. Because what we what we've seen, at least so far in Bitcoin's history, is that these events are periodic. And so we don't necessarily need right now tools to manage persistent high fees, but we definitely need tools to
0: manage intermittent high fees. And interesting sorry, just to return to the concept of low effort. I've also had that thought when listening to developers talk about building tooling on top of layer twos or sidechains like Liquid. It sounds like there's a, so much functionality there. At the same time, why isn't there this activity happening? And my sense is that because complicated tools are complicated to use and this sort of explosive interest comes at a point when people can just sort of you know do it very easily. So do you think that the Things like tarot and liquid would have more adoption if someone just created tooling that allowed people to sort of easily spin up their their token there and then you'd see this on top of those protocols or do you think that there is actually something kind of special about putting a token or putting a jpeg directly onto the bitcoin blockchain that those protocols on lightning or on a sidechain don't have
1: my answer is going to be yes i think there is a subcategory of users of brc20 for who her- the cost of making these BRC20 transactions on-chain and the, the games you play with guessing the fee you need to do the BRC20 thing at in order to get your transaction ordered in the way that you want to get the token, since they do depend on the ordering of transactions, that game is part of the of what makes it good, is the playing the fee game. So a subset would stay in something like this. However, I also think that if there was simple tooling, and this is something we can learn from, and as much as like, I kind of hate to say it, from the Ethereum world... So simple tooling brings people to your network and that's what we're seeing here is is when things got easy enough suddenly an explosion happened so if we can make tarot or rgb or liquid so brain dead simple that you know the the same kinds of people who do pumps and dumps on ethereum or on brc20 can also do their pumps and dumps on liquid or tarot or rgb we'll see activity there as well the last part of your what you said about the jpegs i personally find value in commemorating things in The Bitcoin blockchain and inscriptions did make that easy to the point that I did it more than I had previously. When inscriptions first came out, I inscribed some old famous memes like the roller coaster guy or over nine thousand. And there is just like minting jewelry out of gold or or other valuable objects. There is something to be said for memorializing things in Bitcoin. So I think there's places for all of these things. That's why my answer is yes, and that memorializing has a certain value to people that will be willing to pay the high fees on Bitcoin for certain important memorial actions. But a lot of other activity, I think, will move off to second layers or off-chain or side chains as fees go higher and as those things get easier to use.
0: I like the way you put it. We create wedding rings out of gold often because you use something valuable to create kind of a tangible token of an important personal or emotional event. And so using Bitcoin to create something else, something... Artistic, something that can re- represent an important moment to you also could have some value. That's really interesting. I guess when you put it that way, you can't really be too judgmental about what people use block space for, because they're just taking something valuable and you know creating something out of it that might have meaning for them. I just want to end with a comment from Andrew Palestra, who was asked to kind of weigh in on ordinal inscriptions on Bitcoin, and he said, "Unfortunately, as near as I." I can tell there is no sensible way to prevent people from storing arbitrary data in witnesses without incentivizing even worse behavior and or breaking legitimate use cases. So going forward, do you think that there is a way or even a desire to sort of police how people use Bitcoin block space for ordinals, for pump and dump meme coin tokens? Or do you think that it's just a fee market and at the end of the day, fees have to determine everything?
1: I can definitely imagine ways to improve the incentive structure. I don't have any single good idea right now what that would be, but I can imagine there would exist a a better incentive structure that, that ensures we're accounting properly for the costs of storage relative to compute, relative to bandwidth. But I also think that the existing set of, of call it tuning knobs, the 4X SegWit discount, um, the existing script operations limit, um, even the existing block weight limit are reasonably good parameters to create the correct incentive structure for Bitcoin right now. And that's where we would be doing tuning. We wouldn't, I don't think, be doing some kind of a limit, this kind of data versus that kind of data. We would be making sure that incentives are aligned relative to the real costs of what different activities have. BRC20 actually is having a very high cost right now. And so is there some wrong incentive that, that is being exploited, let's say, with BRC20? And interestingly, BRC20 doesn't even need the tap script unlimited because they're small inscriptions. They would fit in SegWit sized scripts. So we I don't know what the incentive change would be to disincentivize BRC20, but I wonder if we can adjust the incentives in the future to manage this kind of thing better.
0: Thanks so much for. Taking the time to explain some of the technical implementation details and thinking behind ordinals, ordinal inscriptions, and BRC20. I think that a lot of people have been concerned about the effect that these activities have had on Bitcoin fees and the size of the Bitcoin blockchain. But speaking with you, my sense is that this is another spike in activity, another usage that was suddenly incentivized by a combination of technology, ease of use, and animal spirits, and that perhaps this too shall pass. Do you want to point our listeners to something about you? Maybe your GitHub?
1: Yeah, you can check me out on GitHub, Brandon Black on GitHub. I don't, I'm not super active in the open source GitHub stuff, but uh, I hope to be more so in the future.
0: I also have heard that you are organizing the Seattle BitDevs meetup. That is very
1: true. Right now, it's happening every last Thursday of the month and in Fitty Ridge, so
0: hope you all join us. Thanks so much for your time, Brandon. Thank you.